good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. I trust you're all doing well this fine February evening. I hope you're warm on your couch, or maybe comfortably cruising as the world flashes by your windshield. Or perhaps you're out on a walk, headphones in, oblivious to the outside world. Well, regardless of where you're listening this evening, you are in for a treat. I've spent the last week assembling calls, reports, news stories, and anecdotal evidence, all in an attempt to bring this season to a rightful end, and more importantly, scare you out of your skin. So, without further fanfare, I present to you your Season 12 finale, Hometown Legends, number 12. Oh boy, do I have some good legends lined up for you. But this season we're going to take a slightly different approach. Now per usual, I'll continue to put the East versus the West allowing the mighty Mississippi to be our dividing line. But, unlike past episodes, where I only focused on one region per episode, this time we're going to have similar stories face off against their opposite coast rival. For example, if there's a Wendigo story out of the east, I might pit it against a skinwalker tale from the west. Not that I have either of those this evening but you get the idea. So, keep track at home and let us know which coast you think was the best coast. Now, without further fanfare, for real this time, I present to you our first hometown legend of this season finale, representing the eastern half of the U.S. Please, welcome repeat offender and longtime listener, Frank, from New York. Back to the program. Hey, Derek, this is Frank from Long Island. My story actually takes place in Queens, New York. That's where I grew up. That's where I'm from. I, I don't know how to describe it. This is, I guess it's, you could say it's a long paranormal or cultish. So there's this park in Queens. It's called Forest Park. It's one of the oldest parks here in New York City, and it divides... Glendale, New York, to Woodhaven, New York. There's actually a street that goes through the park that ends up in, uh, in, in you know, so you could take it from Woodhaven to go into Glendale, Glendale into Woodhaven, whatever. Now, at night, it's not the best place to be, you know. There's a lot of crime and stuff in that area. There's been a lot of burglaries and stuff. And every time I, I drive through it, I just get this, like, weird feeling. It's, it's just a real un- uneasy feeling going through there. Now, the park itself is what the name says. It's, you feel like you're in upstate New York when you're going through the park. It's, the trails there are very woody. You don't feel like you're in New York City. So my friend told me that many years ago, his older brother was skateboarding through the park at night. And it was fairly late at night. I think he said it was around maybe like 11 o'clock, maybe midnight. And he saw this weird light. He's like... What the hell is that? You know, let me check it out. It's like a bonfire. And he said that he saw these guys in robes 
sacrificing an animal, a live animal, and they were just surrounding the fire, and they were just there killing this thing, and he was just like, all right, I'm getting the hell out of here. And I thought that was, you know, kind of weird, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff here in New York, but it's weirder when it's, like, close to home, you know? So I was asking around if anybody, like, you know, knew what the hell was going on in there, and... I don't know if it's related, but this park is next to a cemetery. Now, this cemetery has got some celebrities in there. Jackie Robinson's in there. The actor from Wizard of Oz, the guy who played the lion, he's in there as well. But there's one that sticks out, and that's Harry Houdini. So Harry Houdini's buried in the cemetery, and supposedly there's a legend or urban legend that he said that my greatest trick is that I'm going to come back from the dead. So every year, there's actually people that go to his grave to see if he does it. Now, my friend, he lives on a dead-end street in the neighborhood of Glendale, and at the end, there's this fence, and on the other side of the fence is that cemetery. He said that one night, really late at night, that he saw these guys in robes just hopping this fence. He said it was a whole bunch of them. It was the, it was the creepiest thing he's ever seen, and they're just you know, running down his block away from the cemetery. And now I'm wondering if, like, they're connected with that, whatever's going on inside that park, if it has to do with Harry Houdini or any of that stuff. Maybe you can use the story for uh, Hometown Legends. Maybe not, but, you know, I love the show. Hope you can use it. If anybody else who's listening to this knows about it, you know, we'll love to hear it, too. All right, Derek, thanks a lot. Thank you, Frank. There's certainly elements to the story that we've heard before. It wasn't that many episodes ago that we heard from an unidentified caller from Alabama that also came across a strange ritual. You can find that one on Season 12, Episode 12. It's spooky stuff. Not something you want to stumble upon while walking through the woods at night. Then, of course, there's the mention of Harry Houdini and the repeated attempts of his friends, fans, and family to contact him on the anniversary of his death, October 31st. Now, sometime before his death, Houdini, the master debunker, I might add, made a vow to make contact after his death if he is able. So, for some ten straight years, Houdini's widow, Bess, assembled a seance in hopes to make contact with her dearly departed husband. The tenth and final seance was held on the tenth anniversary of Harry's death atop the Knickerbocker Hotel in Hollywood, California. Now, unluckily for them, Houdini was a no-show. But luckily for us, they recorded the entire thing on audio. The following is a portion of the recording made that evening. The voice you're about to hear is that of Dr. Edward Saint friend and business partner to Bass Houdini. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. We have gathered here at the appointed time. We have complied with all the requirements to enable all of you to make your presence known. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? 
please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Udini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. And Bessie is here. Your Bessie, who was part of you for 33 years. She's here, Harry, pleading in her heart for a prearranged sign from you. Now at around midnight that evening, the group closed the circle for the final time. At last, Dr. Saint, in a voice that broke and filled with emotion, asked, Mrs. Houdini, the zero hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the 10-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and seance, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini shrine has burned for 10 years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. Sadly, Houdini did not return. And I absolutely love that story. I even have a photo of that final seance hanging in my office to this day. So thank you, Frank, for giving me an excuse to discuss it again. And now for the rebuttal of Frank's entry, so to speak. A western story pertaining to a cemetery. Now for this one, please... Welcome our anonymous caller from the state of Texas. Hi, Derek. This is for the Hometown Legends episode. The story I'm going to tell you about happened in Crosby, Texas, which is northeast of Houston. This happened in 1982 to Sam and Judith Haney. The Haneys moved into a Newport subdivision. They were one of the first couples to move into the area. And after living there for about a year, they decided they wanted to put in a pool. And one day a man knocked on their door and said he noticed the equipment and he needed to let them know that they were about to dig up people's graves. He said he knew that there was people buried there because when he was a teenager, he had dug several of the graves himself. The Haney's home and several others were built on an African-American cemetery called Black Hope. Sam Haney needed to know for himself and he started digging. Soon he came upon two pine boxes and he called the sheriff. He found out that everything that was told to him was absolutely true. The Haneys felt terrible about disturbing the graves and tried to rebury the people, but it was too late. 
the couple began hearing strange noises and they weren't the only ones. Dozens of their neighbors also heard strange noises, saw lights, heard people talking, had TVs go on and off, faucets go on and off. One of the neighbors noticed sinkholes in the shape of coffins in their yard. The Haneys sued the developer and won $142,000 for mental anguish, but a reversal ruled the developer was not liable and the Haneys were forced to pay the developer's legal fees. If you Google Black Hope Cemetery, you will see someone's home. The cemetery and the graves are true. The hauntings related to the cemetery is the part in question. I've never been to the subdivision, but a co-worker told me that she went one time and there was a lot of abandoned homes, far more than you would typically see in a normal neighborhood. She felt like people probably experienced things and just decided to leave. Um, Derek, hope you can use this. I love the show. Love hearing everyone's stories. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, caller. Now here's another one that we've heard about before, or at least a similar story. Now we've covered stories like this one from other parts of the South. I believe Louisiana and Florida both come to mind. And might I say, good on the Haneys for at least trying to do the right thing, instead of simply turning their heads at the first sign of trouble. It's just too bad that the courts didn't follow suit. Now this is just one of those stories that continues to remind you that you never really know what kind of history is below your feet. So thank you again for sending that one in, caller. So there it is, folks. Our first little competition out of the way. Who do you think had the spookier entry there? Hop on social media and let us know or something. Well, this next one might not be so easy to decide. Not that the last one was either. But please, welcome another repeat offender, Deanna, back to the program. Hey Derek, it's Deanna again. My other story is from Hawaii. How much of the story is true, I don't know. My ex-mother-in-law actually used to tell it to my children and my nephews. So I heard her talking about it a lot, God rest her soul. She was a fantastic woman, and she lived in Hawaii and California, and, you know, she really enjoyed being on the coast and, you know, visiting family and friends, and she still got some family down there. But her story is about, well, my story about her story is about the Minihuni. And the Minihuni are little people. They're like dwarves, but they're... Well, I guess they are like dwarves in modern history, folklore. They built things and they were craftsmen and, you know, they they did all sorts of things. But what my mother-in-law told us and told the kids primarily was that the Minihuni were little people. And if you found them or looked at them or something along those lines, something would happen. 
And so she had this little like plastic mini honey figurine and it looked like a small Hawaiian man dressed in a grass skirt with a necklace on and bracelets and I, I, I don't recall the rest, but just a cute little plastic mini honey. And she would hide it in like her fake flora in her house. And the kids, if they found it, she'd be like, oh, the mini honey found you. You're going to have like good luck or something. So it became this cute little thing for the kids. But I was always kind of, you know, what are my mini honey? <laughs> I don't understand. So I, I did. I kind of looked it up a little bit, but I didn't go too far into it because, you know, it was it was just the magic of the story. But she was very, very vibrant when she told the kids about it and, you know, talking about Hawaii and her history and her family history and stuff like that. And, you know, I always thought the mini Hoonie were night marchers. So I was kind of like, oh, that's concerning. But I guess they're not. It's a completely different race or culture of, of smaller people or actually that the mini Hoonie are, are physical people and that the night marchers are more of an like a ghostly form I'm not real I guess I'm not sure I'm just babbling now but anywho that's my story or I guess my mother-in-law's story have a good day bye thank you as always Deanna the Manihune now we've undoubtedly discussed these mysterious entities before though I can't quite recall when that might have taken place so let's brush up on the lore here now the following according to 2.hawaii.com Hawaiian legend has it that many centuries ago the Menehune were a mischievous group of small people or dwarves who lived hidden in the forest and valleys of the islands before the first settlers arrived from Polynesia. These Menehune who roamed the deep forest at night were said to be about two feet tall though some were as tiny as six inches small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. They enjoyed dancing, singing, and archery, and their favorite foods were bananas and fish. Now, I should also add that the Menehune were considered master builders and could build roads, canoes, houses, that sort of thing, overnight. And you know, all this Menehune talk got me to thinking. Do people in Hawaii still have experiences with this mysterious race? And after a quick search... It turns out the Finding Bigfoot team went there, for some reason, and ended up discussing the Menehune. And lo and behold, they provided a few first-hand encounters. Here are two of the better ones from that Animal Planet program. My name's John Flaherty. I live on the Big Island. Many years ago, I had an experience that made me believe Menehunes are very much real. We were hunting deep in the forest. And as we looked at each other, right between us were foot tracks. And these were the size of a kid that you would expect to be two to three years old. Nobody would take a kid where we were. It was just unheard of. Uh, my name's Albert Hegeman. Some years back, I guess about 10 years ago, I was walking on the trail and I look up, and I saw three creatures sitting in a tree fern that I couldn't explain to you what they were. 
these three little creatures that were sort of about this big, and they were like little round fur balls except for their faces. And the other thing that seemed really weird was their demeanor. They were very nonchalant, and they were kind of looking at me like without any apprehension. They were like three people looking at me. Now you can catch the rest of those stories, including what one witness claims to be a photo of the Manahune, over at the show notes at monstersamonguspodcast.com. Now I love it, Deanna, so thank you for taking the time to share your hometown legend with us. Now from one ancient legend to another, we venture by boat, or I suppose by plane, to the state of Connecticut, where Andrew has the East's entry waiting. Hi, fellow Monsters Among Us listeners. This is Andrew from Connecticut calling in to contribute to the Hometown Legends segment. I just wanted to start off by saying I love the podcast, and over the past few months have binged every episode. Derek, you and your team, in my opinion, have created something very special, and I want to congratulate you on winning Best Paranormal Podcast. Now back to the hometown legend. I live in Haddam, Connecticut, and this legend occurs in East Haddam, specifically the town of Moodus. It is known as the Moodus Sounds. Now I've never been fortunate enough to hear the sound, but it is described as subterranean and can sound like thunder, tree fall, and even gunshot fire, according to witnesses. It has been documented as far back as the 1700s and has been even described by the First Nations people, the Wengunk. In fact, the name Mudas originated from the native word Machimudas, or the place of bad noises. The Native Americans believed the rumbling was the voice of their god, Hobomoko, who was angered by the arrival of Puritan settlers. The early Puritans, on the other hand, believed that the cacophony of sound was that of the wrath of God. It wasn't until the 20th century that Boston College Weston's observatory concluded the sounds as shallow earthquake, called earthquake swarms. But what if it isn't? The Moodus sounds were further immortalized by H.P. Lovecraft, in which he used the Moodus sounds as inspiration for the Dunwich Horror. He described it as the voices of Azazel, and Buzrael, and Beelzebub, and Belial, wherein there were a rattling and rolling, groaning, screeching, and hissing, such as no things of this earth could raise up, and which must needs have come from those caves that only black magic can discover, and only the devil unlock. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Andrew. That's a new one to me. Now, of course, I've heard of these infamous locations where a persistent sound has made itself part of local lore before. But not this one. There's a few famous ones that even come to mind. The Taos Hom in New Mexico. The Windsor Hom in Ontario, Canada. And the Auckland Hom in New Zealand. But if I'm honest, the strange sound has been heard all over the globe. But as I'd mentioned, I had not heard of the Moodus sounds, or the Moodus noises, as I've also seen them labeled. So a huge thank you to you, Andrew, for making that introduction. Now there you have it, folks. Two centuries-old legends battling it out. Who do you think came out victorious. Now, if you have a true paranormal story you would like to have shared on the show, 
simply give us a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me at monstersamonguspodcast at gmail.com. Now before we progress any further this evening, I need to warn you all that hometown legends tend to stem from tragic events. Murders, suicide, racial conflicts, and other travesties are prevalent in the following stories. Though I do believe most of the gory details have been reserved, please allow this to be your trigger warning. So let's begin with a deviant tale from Jacob in the state of Oklahoma. Hi, Derek. This is Jacob Lee from Tulsa, Oklahoma, calling in with a hometown legend. So the one I'm trying to talk about today has kind of a complicated backstory, but we'll eventually get to some of the spookier stuff. So I want to talk about the Hex House from Tulsa, Oklahoma. So this all kind of starts with a woman named Opal Mary Carey. She was born originally in Indianapolis sometime in the late 19th century. She eventually falls in love with a man named Faye Smith and moves to Muskogee, Oklahoma. So late 1920s, Faye Smith mysteriously dies. A lot of people who know him believe that he was probably killed by Opal Mary Carey, but it's officially written up as a suicide. Now, Opal Mary Carey has since changed her name to Carolyn Smith as going by that name. She's collected a $30,000 life insurance policy on Faye Smith's head. Now, this definitely raises some eyebrows, including from his sister and from the insurance agency. Well, around this time as well, the insurance agent probing this case dies under mysterious circumstances, and her ex-sister-in-law also dies under mysterious circumstances. Now, she moves to Tulsa sometime in the early 1930s to a house on Tulsa's Riverside. She tries to get her father, who's still living in Indianapolis at the time, to move to Tulsa with her. He dies before he can get there, but she's also apparently taken insurance policy out on his head as well, and she claims that. So fast forward a little bit. She's still living in that house in Tulsa. Very important location. 1935, and a woman comes running from that house in the middle of the night and is struck by a car. So police decide to investigate. They find out this is a woman named Beulah Walker. They ask Carolyn Smith what she was doing in her house and why she ran from there in the middle of the night. All they can find out is that Carolyn Smith claims it was a wealthy aunt who was staying with her. Well, after they do a little bit more digging, they determine it was a nurse that was being paid pennies on the dollar by Carolyn Smith. She had also taken out an insurance claim on her head as well. Nothing really comes of it. Nothing happens to Carolyn Smith. We fast forward again to 1937, 1938. Carolyn Smith meets two women, Virginia Evans and Willetta Horner. Known acquaintances, but nothing particularly amazing happens around that time. We have to go again to the 1940s, really get to the next big part of this case. And this is where everything kind of comes to a head. World War II is going on, and Carolyn Smith is collecting ration tickets from the ration board. Very normal at the time, how food was being distributed, other goods, so on and so forth. However, she's taking more than her fair share. She has more ration tickets than she's supposed to. So the ration board turns her into the police, saying something's a little fishy here. Well, police start investigating her for fraud here, and they do a little bit of their own digging. They find out a maintenance man who had gone into that house in Riverside that she's still living in reported seeing a woman down in the basement. 
apparently neighbors have also heard screaming in the middle of the night, some odd kind of lights going on, you know, some other fishier stuff. They say Carolyn Smith brought a coffin or a sarcophagus out to her backyard, again, sometime in the middle of the night, and buried it. They're worried to some degree that it might be a body. So police at this point know something is highly amiss. You have the ration tickets, you have the woman spot in the basement, you have a string of other incidents. Well, police get a warrant out for arrest. They have enough. So they go to that house, they go in the basement, they find two women living in there in destitute conditions, absolute squalor. So something terrible has obviously been happening. And what they come to find out is that Carolyn Smith had been having these two women, again, Virginia Evans and Willetta Horner, essentially living down in her basement for years. They would go to work in the middle of the day, come back, give most or all of their money to Carolyn Smith, where she would then turn around and buy cosmetics, luxury goods, nice clothing, a Packard car, other kind of things to the sum of hundreds of dollars, which of course in modern money would probably be something like thousands towards each individual good. Now, the women, when they're investigated, say that Carolyn Smith had hypnotized them and said that she would keep these two women from going to hell and promise them salvation and gifts in the afterlife. Essentially, she was kind of operating a one-on-one cult with these two women. Now, when the police asked Carolyn Smith about this, and Carolyn Smith seems to insinuate to the police that the reason why the two women were down in their basement was that the relationship they all shared had a scandalous kind of romantic bent to it. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 1940s, so this is definitely something that would be probably a, a hot-button issue at the time. The two women claim that that's not true, and that this was essentially another attempt by Carolyn Smith to further isolate them from their family. So, Carolyn Smith is eventually arrested for this Virginia Evans and Willetta Horner are released, and eventually Carolyn Smith is processed, sent out of jail, and just kind of disappears from the public eye. And I think she dies sometime in the 1960s, 1970s. Well, this is a huge case in the Tulsa area. There was an article published in the Tulsa World that you can still find today. There are pictures of people swarming the house during that time. So, of course, the rumor spreads, and this becomes an instant local legend high school students start traveling to the house after this happens and after her death and they start saying that there are weird lights and screams that can be heard coming from the house there's also some reports that if you turn your radio station or your car to a specific fm station you could hear kind of weird sounds and screams coming through there so in 1975 this house that carolyn smith had is torn down and replaced with a building from the actors Now, people who claim that they parked in the parking lot that would have been over Carolyn Smith's old house would have their cars moved sometime while they were gone. They'd come back to them and find that their lights were on, the doors were open, and they were still running. Again, not in the same spot that they parked. Well, eventually that Actar building was knocked down, and I think a bank and some apartments were built over it. Some spooky stuff still happens to this day. But this is kind of an interesting case for a number of reasons. I think the history around it outstrips the actual story itself. You know, we're kind of looking at something that was at the intersection of taboo and instant sort of infamy and, you know, some some kind of loose ends that might implicate that Carolyn Smith was something of a female serial killer. The haunting's there, but, you know, this is a very complicated case. So Hex House still lives on today. There might just be a bank apartment where it once stood. 
but you can still find the stairs from that house right in that area. The most famous local haunted house attraction, you know, the kind of Halloween fake haunted house attraction is also named after the Hex House. And that's the sort of impact that's had on the area. Well, that's all I wanted to share with you. Thank you so much for the time. I got to thank you so much, Derek, for your podcast. It actually brought my girlfriend and I together. So that's a real, real big blessing of my life. I just want to thank you. You have a wonderful day. Thank you, Jacob and Mazeltov, to you both. You know, it only takes three murders to be labeled a serial killer. Now, I've said it before, but I'm not much of a true crime guy. I'll take hairy monsters over human ones any day. But add 80 years or so, then the historical curiosity, well, that begins to pull me in. And what a wild story it's pulled us into. Now, I threw a link up in the show notes to some video of the area. If you're curious what the house looked like when it was standing and now that it's been raised. And thanks again, Jacob, for sharing your local legend with us. Tonight's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. It's no secret that the last two years have come with many struggles for us all. But with the new year comes a new chance to prioritize your mental health. I've struggled with depression and trauma, and in my experience, speaking to a professional can truly make a difference. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a convenient, safe online environment and start communicating in under 48 hours. With BetterHelp, you have the option to schedule weekly video or phone sessions or message your counselor at any time. Rest easy knowing anything you share is confidential. Now, BetterHelp's counselors specialize in depression, stress, anxiety, grief, family conflicts, and more. The service is available worldwide and at a much more affordable price than offline counseling. And of course, financial aid is also available. So start this year off by making a change that will help lead you to a healthier, happier life. As a Monsters Among Us listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash monsters among us join over 1 million people who have already taken charge of their mental health again that's betterhelp h-e-l-p dot com slash monsters among us as always supporting our sponsors supports the show so thanks for listening and back to the spooky stuff now I don't exactly have a perfect match for a few of these calls so what I decided to do is Toss in a few of my own hometown legends, since I've spent considerable time in both of tonight's competitive regions. And the one I've selected as a competitor to Jacob's entry is one that is near and dear to my heart for a number of reasons. For starters, next to no one has heard of this story. I actually found it in an obscure history book about my home county, well before the internet was popular. It was a hard-earned discovery that I've held in my pocket until now. During my college years, my mother and brothers moved to a place called Salesville, Ohio, a tiny, nigh-microscopic hamlet in east-central Ohio. I bet there were only 20 houses in this quote-unquote town. A tiny country market sat on the corner, as is often customary in the sticks, 
the type of place where you can see through the worn floorboards. And the entire building smells of jerky and sausage. Now, although the setting of this story is Salesville, it takes place many, many years ago. Nearly 200 to be exact. Because in 1828, God came to the town of Salesville. He announced himself amidst a country revival outside of town one summer evening. Those present claimed the entire congregation came to a halt when a thunderous snort broke the crowd. A snort more powerful than a horse, one witness mentioned. The strange sound was followed by an unearthly voice that rang out, Salvation! Then stepped up a man in a purple frock coat, complete with a blazing white cravat and a brilliant yellow beaver hat. Certainly out of place for anyone carving out a living into the Ohio hillside in the 1820s. Now, the man's name was Joseph C. Dilks, and he claimed to be God, set forth to create a new kingdom that would, in his words, never end. Now I bet you can guess where this is going from here. Half of the Leatherwood Valley took him for gospel. His ability to recite long passages from the Bible helped to cement his place in the religious hierarchy. But the other half of the valley was not as easily convinced. And they watched helplessly as the social fibers holding the community together were frayed one by one by Delks who had by now begun accepting offerings from his disciples. Now despite repeated claims that he is indeed God, therefore he cannot be harmed, an angry mob formed, tracked Dilks down to the home of one of his followers, and yanked a fistful of hair from his scalp, a testament to their claim that he was merely a con man. Soon after this altercation, Joseph Dilks set off for Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, no doubt, a run for his life. In the weeks after Dilk's departure, it's said that neighborhood children discovered an elaborate rock formation just below the surface of Leatherwood Creek, a structure Dilk's created to sell the illusion that he was able to walk on water. But Dilk's transgressions did not go unpunished. He never arrived in Philadelphia. Now, it's always been rumored that the leaders of the opposing group tracked Dilks down and murdered him by his campfire somewhere near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But still to this day, no one has heard a word from the Leatherwood God. So there you have it. Madness of varying degrees. So who's scarier? Opal Mary Carey murderer of many, or Joseph C. Dilks, con man and killer of a community. Place your bets, ladies and gentlemen. Now, folks, don't forget I'm taking some time off between seasons. I'll be returning on March 10th with the Tales from the Cloth special. In the meantime, you can still pick up merchandise and find plenty more episodes over at patreon.com. That's monstersamonguscom forward slash shop for the merchandise and patreon.com forward slash monstersamonguspodcast for 55 bonus episodes 
for only $4 a month. And that's about all the time I have for announcements this week because I have a plethora of paranormal legends to run by you. Beginning with Cody in the state of Tennessee. Hey Derek, this is Cody from Tennessee Fresh, California. Calling in about your hometown legends. Growing up in Tennessee, I grew up in a small town. I'm not going to name the name because you won't find it on the map anyways. We had like five stop signs and that was it. Basically, we didn't really have any hometown legends there unless you ask the old people and they'll tell you about the Wooly Burger, which is basically just their version of the boogeyman to keep kids out of the woods at night. But there is a town nearby called Cedar Grove that, when I was growing up, was famous for goat man sightings. I don't know how it is now, but everyone, when I grew up, knew about the Cedar Man goat man. If you went out into the woods at night, you would see him. He'd chase you out of the woods. Another prevalent thing that I don't really consider cryptic, but I guess it is now, is there's plenty of ABC sightings around where I am, which I called in before to tell you we live about eight miles away from a military arsenal that has a lot of acreage pardoned off that you're not supposed to trespass. Like, I had a buddy walk the train tracks and got within the perimeter before he knew it, and he had a Hummer actually pull up through the field and escort him out. They're real high on security. That's where... Supposedly, the military exposed ABCs to the area there to help with the deer population, which is out of control. And they didn't expect them to take hold and breed so fast, which, I mean, that's what happens when animals have abundance of food. But, yeah, apparently that's the way the rumor is. The military dropped off Black Panthers to help since cougars weren't really a thing in the area, and... Honestly, if cougars were a thing in the area, people would probably shoot them. People seeing the giant black panther, they're more prone to stop and stare or just run. Or they get nervous when they try to shoot, which is why you see most people miss. But it's a pretty prevalent thing. If you ask a lot of older people around that area in West Tennessee, most of them have seen one or knows of someone close that has seen one. It's pretty common. It's a phenomenon there. It's not so much encrypted, it's just a part of life. Alright, thank you, Derek. You have a good day. Thanks, Cody. Another goat man. I believe it was the last hometown legend special where we uncovered some sort of goat man activity in the state of Montana. There are goat men everywhere, it seems. And of course, the ABCs that Cody mentioned. And he added a new twist that some government agency released them as a form of population control. I certainly can't speak to the validity of that rumor. If I'm honest, it sounds pretty far-fetched. A longer deer season would probably be a more lucrative and rational approach. But I have heard rumors like this before. Back in Ohio in the 90s, I'd sometimes hear of people talk about the government releasing timber rattlesnakes in my area said to control wild turkey populations. A claim that is completely bogus, I might add. But that's not to say that Cody's claims are of a similar origin. After all, there have been a series of strange animal attacks in nearby Kentucky 
that's killed many farm animals and at least one unfortunate youth. A creature that's still yet to be identified. So be careful out there, Cody. And thank you for sharing your hometown legend. Now the West's nomination for the strange and unusual creature category comes to us from Maria in parts unknown. Hi Derek, this is Maria. And for your request, I'm calling in my dad's hometown legend. So my dad's hometown, um, well first let me say I haven't spoken to my dad in many years, so this is just my memory of what he told me, what my mom has told me. His legend is of the Nawal. The Nawal is known to be a sort of skinwalker, a shapeshifter, these sort of tricksters. And they are most likely known to make deals with the devil. And they were very common in his hometown of Puebla, Mexico. And his story goes that he was basically coming home drunk from a place. And he comes across this very large animal. And it's like a wolf or a dog, something... And he automatically, no matter how drunk he is, he just told me he, like, kind of sobered up a little bit. And I was like, okay, there's a massive animal in front of me with human eyes. And in his head, he just kept going home and tried to, like, quickly walk as fast as he could. And it followed him home. He was, I think he was, like, 22 or so. And he told his mom that he, what he saw, and there was this really massive, scary black dog or wolf and she was like I think that's your uncle who they were rumored that he was a Nawal and the Nawales would actually steal and rape and just do really horrible things to the town and my mom and him have told me stories about the Nawales and they were not cool and they were they are not good creatures so that was it also, my mom and my dad have both also heard the Yorona, the weeping woman. They said it was the worst, like, yell or just the worst sound we can hear out in the middle of the night. And they've heard it. They have not seen it. And, uh, yeah, that was their little quick hometown legend, the weeping woman and the Nahuai. Hope this does you some good. Thank you so much again for playing my previous stories on the podcast. It was a pleasure and it's joy like always. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. Now I believe this is our only international entry this evening. And quite the entry it is. So of course we've all heard of the weeping woman. Lyrona, if you will. So we'll gloss over that for now. But the Nagal Maria mentioned. That's a much less common legend to us here in the States. Now essentially, my research tells me that the Nagal is a shape-shifting entity that dates back thousands of years and has roots to the Aztec Empire. There's lots of old world magic here, which makes it a formidable foe for the Goatman. Which after all is essentially a satyr, a half-man, half-goat figure from ancient lore. So perhaps these two have been battling it out for longer than we could ever have imagined. And a big thanks to Cody and Maria for making that matchup available to us. And that's going to bring us to the final matchup for this part one of this hometown legend finale. Now don't worry, 
Part 2 will be an immediate release. Look for it before this weekend, if not sooner. No paywalls this time as a thank you to you guys. So to bring us to our halfway point in this Season 12 special is in from the state of Tennessee. Hi, we'll call me N for the sake of some anonymity. I currently live in Southern California, but I lived for a long time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is a beautiful southern city with lots and lots of history and lots and lots of hauntings and I have multiple stories. Tonight I wanted to share about the Reed House Hotel which I believe is the Sheraton Hotel now but historically was the Reed House and it has tons of history and tons of ghosts. I did have some experiences with one. So there is rumor that on the third floor of the hotel in room 311 a woman by the name of Annalise Netherly was murdered by a jealous lover. Some people say she ran away from her husband. Some say she was a prostitute. Either way, rumor has it that her throat was split and or she was decapitated in the tub of that hotel room. Now, it is also said that she particularly picks on men and that women do not really have experiences with her, which is really interesting. But I was staying there. My ex-husband and I were there. And I remember we learned about this on the Chattanooga Ghost Tour, which if you're ever visiting or any listeners are, it's an amazing tour with amazing guides. And it's a beautiful city you get to hear a lot of history about. But I digress. So I remember talking to him and being like, should I, you know, should I call and say I don't want to be on the third floor? Like, I really don't want to have experiences with this ghost. But we decided that, you know, what are the chances of in a, like, 12-story building you get put on the third floor, right? Well, we did. Not only were we on the third floor, we were adjacent, like, across the hallway from Annalise's room. (sighs) So... We were, you know, there just kind of chilling. We went out to eat, and then we went back to the hotel room, and we were watching TV. And all of a sudden, we started to hear, like, knocking in the wall. And I was like, that's weird. And my ex was like, well, maybe it's plumbing. So we called down to the front desk, and we're like, hey, you know, you guys having plumbing issues? We're hearing this noise in the wall. And they were like, no, everything's, you know, fine. We haven't had any any issues. Everything's good to go up to code because... You know, we're trying to be logical about it. So the more we talk about it, the more frequent and the louder the knocking gets. And I'm, you know, I was just like, okay, that's really weird. The phone rang once and uh, there was no one there. We thought it was the front desk calling us back. And I mean, I guess it could have been, but circumstantially, it was really kind of creepy. And yeah, it was just this really eerie feeling. I am clairsentient, which means that I can feel the presence of spirits, so I don't see them or often, and often I don't hear them, I can feel that they're there, and I was so uncomfortable. So my ex is finally like, you know what, let's stop talking about her and see if she just goes away. You know, she likes to mess with men, she likes to be acknowledged, let's just stop talking about her. So we did, and we we turned the TV up, and kind of tried to let that slip from our mind as easily as we could and it it worked for the most part (laughs) she went away I asked him later if he had any other experiences when he was like in the bathroom or anything because there are reports of her 
showing up in the mirrors and stuff. And he never saw her. We never had anything happen other than the wall knocking. But I know you love a good hometown story. So that's my contribution. One of many I'll probably call back from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Have a great day. Thank you, Ann. What's a hometown legend episode without a haunted hotel entry? And this was a pretty good one. So Inn's description got me thinking. I wonder what a night in this room would actually be like. Then I got to digging and discovered that the room was actually recently remodeled, which we all know the effect that can have on activity. And get this, they let the room out to a courageous couple They got a first crack at the ghost of Annalisa Netherly in room 311. It's been said paranormal activity goes on in this room, leaving many guests wanting to stay overnight. They say the ghost of a woman who was allegedly beheaded in this room in the 1920s still haunts it today. It was just very disturbing. Sheba and Trip Gorman drove up from Atlanta as the first guests to stay overnight since the room was restored. The price to do so? Symbolic. It's $666.67. The couple says it was a sleepless night in room 311, hearing voices, scratching, and even getting touched. She said, I feel something grab my wrist. And then it like happened and then it stopped. They say they also felt someone, or should I say something, pushing against the bed. They believe it was the ghost of Annalisa Netherly. I just kept like seeing things move in the corner of my eye. Letting them know they aren't welcome in 311. That clip courtesy of Local 3 News out of the Tennessee Valley. And that's quite a lot of activity to experience in one evening. But I guess we just have to take their word for it. Thanks again, Ann, for sharing your hometown legend. Now, to close out this first part, a familiar voice that we missed on the last Hometown Legend special. Please join me in welcoming amongst the award winner and Texas history aficionado, Alan, back to the program. Hi Derek, this is Alan from Texas, and this is for Hometown Legends. Uh, Before I start, I'd just like to say I really enjoy the podcast, and I think the uh, Hometown Legends shows that you do are my favorite ones. San Antonio, Texas has lots of ghost stories and other strange legends. So I thought I'd tell about one of the hotel hauntings that I've read about. Uh, There's several very old hotels in San Antonio, and it seems they all have stories of being haunted. But uh, I'll just talk about one of them. And I should probably warn that uh, this story has some violence. It's quite gruesome, so it may not be for everyone. The Gunter Hotel is now in downtown San Antonio, but when it was built in 1837, it was on the outskirts of the town, less than half a mile northwest of the Alamo, as the crow flies, on a bend of the San Antonio River. It started out called the Settlement Inn, but I've also read that in those early days it was also known as the Frontier Inn. So anyway, it was founded only a year after the fall of the Alamo, so it was still pretty much on the frontier. And the Gunter has had a very colorful history, changing owners and names several times. But the story I'll talk about happened in relatively modern times, in 1965. And by that time, it was known as the Gunter Hotel. 
On February 6, 1965, a tall, blind, handsome man in his late 30s checked in using the name Albert Knox, K-N-O-X. He was assigned room 636, and during the next two days he was seen several times leaving and returning with an attractive woman whose name wasn't then and still isn't known. Nothing about her is known except that she was definitely there and accompanying Albert Knox. She was described as being tall, strikingly beautiful, and about the same age as Knox. On February 8th, two days later, one of the hotel's housekeepers was just doing her job and bringing some new linens and such to room 636. There was a do not disturb sign hanging on the doorknob, but since it was in the afternoon, she assumed the guest had just forgotten to remove it and open the door anyway. When she opened the door, she saw Albert Knox standing at the foot of the bed, holding a bloody bundle of bedsheets in his arms. There was blood splattered everywhere. The floor, the walls, the ceiling, everywhere. The housekeeper screamed and Knox put his finger to his lips in the sign to be quiet, and then he bolted, pushing past her and fleeing the hotel, still carrying the blood-soaked bundle of sheets. He ran out of the hotel and disappeared. When the police investigated the scene, they discovered that the bathroom looked even worse than the main room. Everything was covered with blood. The bathtub was the worst part. It looked like a great deal of blood had pooled in it and then been drained, leaving a bloody bathtub ring. They also found a single empty 22 shell lying on the bed, apparently from the murder weapon. There appeared to be several trails of blood going back and forth between the bed and the bathroom, and the investigators' speculations about how he may have disposed of her body are probably best left unspoken. The entire police force looked for the woman throughout the city, but she was never found. Nor was there ever a missing persons report made for a woman who fit the description of the one who had been accompanying Albert Knox. They learned that a man of Knox's description had tried to buy a meat grinder at a nearby Sears store the day before the murder. But the one he wanted was bigger than the one they had in stock, and he was told they would have to order it for him. So he left without buying one. And the police also learned during their investigation that the man's real name was Walter Emmerich. He was a resident of San Antonio, and at that time he was an unemployed accountant. Then on February 9th, a man using the name Roger Ashley checked into the nearby St. Anthony Hotel, which is just a few blocks away from the Gunter. He carried no luggage, and he refused to let any of the housekeepers clean his room. His appearance and his behavior aroused the suspicion of the hotel employees, and they tipped the police that he might be the man they were looking for. When the police got there, his room door was locked. They tried to quietly unlock it, to take him by surprise, but he apparently heard them, and they heard a single gunshot from inside the room. They burst through the door to find that Walter Emmerich had taken his own life with a twenty-two pistol, apparently the same gun he had used to murder the unidentified woman. They were able to conclusively identify him by his fingerprints, which matched the bloody fingerprints found inside room 636 of the Gunter. And there's another bit of weirdness that may or may not have happened, but the story goes that many years later, an envelope was delivered to the Gunter addressed only to manager Gunter Hotel. By this time, the hotel had been officially renamed the Sheraton Gunter, 
which is still its current name, but the envelope was addressed simply to the manager of the Gunter Hotel. Also, the address used the old zip code that the hotel had had back in the 1960s before the post office had rezoned the city and changed many of the zip codes. Inside the envelope was just a key. It was a key that would have belonged to the door of the old room 636. Room 636 has been divided into two rooms and renumbered since all this happened, but hotel employees and guests have reported seeing a tall, phantasmal woman in the area of what used to be room 636. Sometimes she seems to be holding up her hands as if trying to ward off an attack or maybe pleading for help. Sometimes she seems to have a shocked, surprised expression as if she had just received a mortal wound and knew she was about to die. Sometimes, it's said, she appears in photos taken inside the hotel. To this day, no one knows who she was and although the murderer is known, the victim is not, and her body was never found, so it still remains an open case. And there's another connection that the Gunter has with a uh, paranormal legend, I guess you could say. In November of 1936, a musical talent scout set up a makeshift recording studio in room 414 of the Gunter, Back then, uh, record companies would send talent scouts out across the country. They would rent rooms in large hotels in major cities and then advertise that they were looking for musical talent. And musicians would come in and audition, and if they were good enough, they would be recorded right then and there. And their recordings would be released on 78 RPM records. On November 23rd of 1936, a blues musician named Robert Johnson showed up and spent the next three days recording 16 songs, plus uh, many outtakes and alternate takes of those songs, there in room 414. Several months later, he recorded another bunch of songs at another hotel in Dallas. And then about a year after that, he was dead, supposedly poisoned by the jealous husband of a woman he'd had an affair with. And yes, when he died, he was only 27 years old. He may have actually been the founding member of what people now refer to as the 27 Club. If you haven't heard the story of Robert Johnson, it's said that he started out as a completely mediocre musician who was looked down on by other more accomplished blues players until one night he went to a crossroads at midnight. Exactly which crossroads this was is disputed. But he waited there until exactly at midnight when another man suddenly appeared. Johnson handed the man his guitar and the man tuned it, then handed it back to Johnson. From that time on, Johnson suddenly became one of the best, if not the best, blues guitarist of the time, possibly of all time. It was thought that the only way he could have suddenly gained such talent was by selling his soul to the devil. Now, no one has ever reported a blues guitar playing ghost in the Gunter, but then there are many other places that he might be haunting, if he's haunting anywhere at all. Maybe the other hotel in Dallas where he recorded his other songs, or the place he died, or the last place he played, or where he's buried. And by the way, his burial place isn't certain either or could have been any number of other places he was connected to in life or it could be 
if you sell your soul to the devil, maybe that means your ghost doesn't get to stick around when you go. Anyway, room 414 is still there, so you can still go there and stay in it, if you want. It's great to hear your voice again, Alan. Thank you for calling in. How interesting that these two well-known hotel stories seem to share the same details. Two women murdered. Dismemberment in a bathtub. Two infamously haunted rooms left in the wake. And both hotels are now part of the Sheraton family. And just like the Reed Hotel in Chattanooga, I'm equally as curious what witnesses experienced in room 620, previously room 636, of the Gunther as well. After that investigation was conducted, I actually stayed in that room for the rest of the night because I again did rent this room. And there were some strange things that happened. Around 3.30, I was woken up by, I think it was either a loud noise or some fumbling with the front door to the room. It actually sounded like somebody was trying to get in the room. Actually, at the time I got up, this noise was so loud, I got up, I checked the door, I walked down in the hallway, I looked, and at first I didn't see anything. And then out of the corner of my eye, down the hallway, I actually saw what appeared to be a blonde woman. Now that story was told from the perspective of a paranormal investigator that held an overnight investigation there at the hotel. And the clip is courtesy of the Strange Chronicles from the Graveyard Shift YouTube channel. So if you're out and about and find yourself in Chattanooga, Tennessee or San Antonio, Texas and you need a place to stay, do yourself a favor and steer clear of rooms 311 and 620 respectively or risk coming face to face with a real life hometown legend thanks again Alan for taking the time to call in I met a man who says he's seen me Three nights outside his home But I swear I have just arrived here He swears that we are not alone Born in pleasant West Virginia Something's watching in the dark Now that was listener Joel out of Illinois with his song Point Pleasant on his EP Diversions. Now I've posted a link to his band camp in the show notes. There's some fun stuff in there if you're curious. 
And thank you, Joel, for sending the song in. And that's going to do it for this part one. Give me a couple of days to slap the back half together and I'll get it up as quickly as possible. In fact, it's probably already there. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And keep the party going by following us on social media. We have accounts at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget this Friday, a brand new episode of my YouTube video series, Pair Weekly, will be dropping. There's all sorts of fresh video to go over. And lastly, the terrifying score you heard this evening was provided by Co.ag Music, Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, and Carl Casey and White Bad Audio. Thank you so much for listening. And until part two.